Welcome back to the Neural Farm Podcast. We're so glad you're here. There are over 4 million podcasts in the U.S., but we are sure happy that you chose this one, and hopefully this is worth your time in being both informative and providing a little entertainment value. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Colby Burns, Dr. Pharmacy. I'm joined by Christopher Tony, Dr. Pharmacy. Uh, we have a great episode in store for you today. How hot is it there in Reading, Chris? It's hot. It's been in the mid-90s. Um all day and yesterday it was you know a little bit hotter than that and i got back from eureka yesterday and i couldn't believe it went from you know 50 something degrees to 90 something degrees and that's a huge temperature difference and uh now i'm finally getting ac in my office um so it's a little bit more bearable but man without ac i don't know what i would do <laughs> Yeah, it's it, up here in uh, Olympia where I am. It's hot today too, but uh, I can see Mount Rainier out my window. The mountain is out, as they say around here. So it's not so bad. We're not getting any wildfire smoke, at least, like they are in uh, New York and D.C. and Philly. At least last week they had all that smoke um, praying for the yeah, firefighters. The fires up in, the fires in Canada, right? Yep, praying for the fires in Canada to get under control because they've been really bad so far this early in the season. Um and making the air yeah. quality hazardous in the East Coast. So think about those in the East listening and uh, we just have the heat here, but not the fires at least yet. <laughs> There's yeah, always time for that. There's always time for that in the fall when things start to get worse around here. But uh, anyways, are you ready to talk about yeah. LSD, Chris? Absolutely. So Colby, what, what distinguishes LSD from other psychedelics? Well, LSD is relatively unique among psychedelics in that it's synthetic. It's not derived from a natural substance like uh, psilocybin, mescaline, ayahuasca, and ibogaine are all actually from elements found in nature. LSD was purely synthesized in a lab. Um, it also lasts a little bit longer in some of those other agents, but we'll we'll get to that later. It's uh, The way it works is slightly different than some of the other psychedelics. But Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman uh, discovered or synthesized LSD in 1938 while working for the pharmaceutical company Sandoz in Switzerland. Hoffman was tasked with finding derivatives of lysergic acid, which is a key component of ergotamine, a fungus found in rye uh, that's known to cause psychotic effects. Ergotamine has been associated with numerous incidents of poisoning throughout history and was referred to in medical textbooks as St. Anthony's Fire. The symptoms of ergo poisoning can cause crawling skin, headaches, vertigo, hallucinations, epilepsy or seizures, vomiting and diarrhea, and even mental health-related symptoms of mania, psychosis, and delirium. Uh, those particular symptoms are similar to the symptoms of overdosing on LSD. It's been hypothesized that ergo poisoning played a role in the Salem witch trials. This is disputed. But there's a few references uh, I'm going to share in the notes about this if you're interested in learning more. Uh, I have a blog called The Outside Hustle, which is separately, and I devoted a column to this back in October. But beyond just causing poisoning, ergotamine was known also as a potent vasoconstrictor and could staunch bleeding post-delivery. It's in fact still used today as part of an order set for postpartum bleeding. 
the drug methergen or methorgonavine, it's just a lot harder to say the methergen, um, is an ergotamine derivative that's used, again, in postpartum order sets if a woman has significant hemorrhage after bleeding that can give that drug. In the 1930s, the pharmaceutical company Sandoz was attempting to create new respiratory or circulatory stimulants, also known as analeptics, based on the lysergic acid compound that was found in ergotamine. I'm not sure what happened to the other 24 products that Hoffman synthesized, but the 25th didn't look like it was going to be a winner. Hoffman synthesized LSD-25 in 1938 by adding a diethylamide group to lysergic acid, then allegedly set it aside. According to an article in The Atlantic, he is quoted as saying, quote, the new substance, however, aroused no special interest in our pharmacologists and physicians. Testing was therefore discontinued, end quote. Although he also went on to note that the animals involved in the lab studies became highly excited after taking it, but again, not the intended effects he was looking for. Something must have inspired Hoffman, though. Uh, five years later, in 1943, during World War II, he, for some reason, decided to revisit this 25th LSD derivative and test it on himself. In the process, he took the first documented psychedelic trip, at least known to Western medicine. Um, we know that you know other cultures were experimenting and using uh, religiously drugs like mescaline for psychedelic ceremonies. Um, but this is perhaps the first Western medicine trip that ever occurred. He would later tell colleagues, I didn't choose LSD, LSD chose me. Hoffman was in the final stage of synthesis of just a few centigrams of the material, working on the part of the synthesis where LSD crystallizes into a salt, when he suddenly felt very strange, to the point that he had to leave work and go home. When he returned to the lab the following Monday, he wrote a memo to his boss explaining what had happened. Quote, I was forced to interrupt my work in the laboratory in the middle of the afternoon and proceed home, being affected by a remarkable restlessness combined with a slight dizziness. At home, I lay down and sank into an unpleasant, intoxicated-like condition characterized by an extremely stimulated imagination. In a dreamlike state, with eyes closed, because I found the daylight to be unpleasantly glaring, I perceived an uninterrupted stream of fantastic pictures, extraordinary shapes, with intense kaleidoscopic play of colors, end quote. Hoffman initially assumed his reaction was due to a chloroform-like solvent that he inhaled, but when he tried the solvent by itself, it did not have the same effect. He came to the conclusion, therefore, that it must have been the trace amount of LST that he came in contact with and that had contributed to his symptoms. Hoffman then synthesized LSD again, and tried a reported dose of 250 micrograms. 40 minutes later, he ended up having to be escorted home by an assistant and wrote this in his journal. Quote, everything in my field of vision was wavered and was distorted as if seen in a curved mirror. I also had the sensation of being unable to move from the spot. Nevertheless, my assistant later told me that we had traveled very rapidly. Finally, we arrived at home safe and sound and I was just barely capable of asking my companion to summon our family doctor and request milk from the neighbors, end quote. A doctor was called, but Hoffman's blood pressure, pulse, and respiratory rate were all normal. When he came around the next morning, 
he wrote in his journal, quote, everything glistened and sparkled in a fresh light. The world was as if newly created. All my senses vibrated in a condition of highest sensitivity, which persisted for the rest of the day, end quote. Hoffman was uncertain if what he experienced was madness or transcendence, but he sensed the potential for this compound to be used in psychiatry and neurology. Following Hoffman's discovery, Sandoz, perhaps in an attempt to see what in particular LSD could be marketed for, did something very unusual or uh, really unimaginable in today's society. It offered to supply LSD under the brand name Delicid free of charge to any researcher or therapist who promised to write up his or her clinical observation. Um, we were talking about that's just unfathomable to think of today. Uh, certainly drug companies do still provide samples to doctor's offices for free, but those are for drugs that have been FDA approved and underwent clinical trial and testing. This was a drug that was just synthesized and then thrown out there on the market. Um, Grand, it was in the 40s, so things were a little different um, in terms of FDA regulations. But it's it's crazy to think about today that they just, here we go, distribute it to doctor's offices when it hadn't even been approved for anything yet. But Sandoz distributed over 40,000 standard 25 microgram doses of Delicid within the U.S. alone between 1949 and 1966, after which it was abruptly uh, pulled from the market, which we will we'll get to, of course, by the end of this discussion. Uh, the U.S. government also provided the patent to LST to people who requested writing so people could synthesize it themselves at home, which is also uh, very hard to believe, but that apparently that's true. Yeah, that would not Anyways, happen Chris, today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyways, Chris, how does LSD work on the body? After being taken, LSD molecules are detected in the central nervous system by a large group of receptors that span cell membranes. These receptors, which are called G-protein-coupled receptors, have many subtypes, including those for the neurotransmitters dopamine, which is involved in reward-seeking behavior, and serotonin, which is involved in the regulation of mood, appetite, sleep, and memory. They recognize and are stimulated by LSD molecules when they are in the body, but outside cells then activate receptors within cells that give rise to LSD's pharmacological effects. In common with other psychedelic or hallucinogenic drugs, LSD binds to many serotonin receptors, but not strongly enough to induce significant pharmacological effects at typical recreational doses. An exception to this is the serotonin 2A receptor, which is known to induce hallucinogenic effects when stimulated by psychedelic or hallucinogenic drugs, such as LSD. Drugs that stimulate pharmacological effects after binding to receptors are called agonists. Although LSD binds tightly to the serotonin 2A receptor, the maximum pharmacologic effect it causes is lower than that for other similar drugs, and once that maximum is reached, further stimulation of these receptors is blocked. For this reason, LSD is described as a strong partial agonist at the serotonin 2A receptor. In contrast with other psychedelic or hallucinogenic drugs that bind to serotonin receptors, LSD also binds to and stimulates many dopamine receptors, in particular the D2 receptor. This binding is thought to stimulate some of the non-hallucinogenic effects of LSD. Dopamine is a key component of reward, leading perhaps to some thought that LSD dependency can be developed, although this is not proven. 
LSD is metabolized in the liver and lasts anywhere from 6 to 12 hours after ingestion. It follows first-order kinetics, meaning that its concentration decreases in a particular in a predictable linear rate with time, but there is a high variability in individual dose response to LSD, which is a bit of a challenge when adopting it in clinical practice and a therapy session. Psilocybin, for example, generally has a duration of six hours, similar to MDMA, but LSD effects can last considerably longer. LSD itself is a white crystalline powder in its pure form, and it can be dissolved in tea or another beverage, put in gelatin squares, which are known as window panes, or dissolved in ethanol and placed on blotter paper, creating a sheet of acid which is the most common way it is consumed. Chris, what is blotter art? I heard you're a resident blotter art expert. Yes, so uh, blotter art would not exist without LSD. Um, You know, LSD is dosed in the microgram range, not milligram range, uh, meaning that, you know, it's one one thousandth of a dose, you know, that is typical in the milligram range. Um, A liquid solution of the drug is applied to the blotting paper, which is commonly perforated into individual doses and artfully decorated with what is known as blotter art. And I encourage you to go on the internet and look up images of blotter art. Um, Every, every, you know, blotter art that you see is kind of unique and you usually you won't see another blotter art that exists in that form unless it's like a brand that an underground chemist is trying to uh, maintain. Sometimes they will use the same images on their uh, acid tabs, um, but most of the time it's uh, one-of-a-kind artwork, and it's pretty interesting, so check it out. That is really cool. Maybe we'll we'll put a link down the bottom uh, to some references if people want to check out some interesting designs. Um, I do want to add there is some concern about LSD that it may potentiate psychosis in those with bipolar disorder and perhaps early onset of schizophrenia-like symptoms in those who have yet to be diagnosed. Um, know that most people, uh, schizophrenia develops in the adolescent age, sometimes a little bit later for males than females. But if you're in that age group and t- trying LSD for the first time, you might not yet have schizophrenia, but it could potentially manifest after consuming LSD. They, they warn the same thing sometimes about marijuana, so it's just something to keep in mind. There are many myths, though, about LSD that exist out there. There's no evidence to suggest that acid flashbacks due to a buildup of LSD molecules in the body is a real thing. Uh, it doesn't just hide out in fat tissue for months or years and cause you to have these flashbacks. It's possible that it, there's a memory response, like you're remembering what happened when you're on LSD, but it's not directly due to the drug itself um, remaining in the body or anything. Uh, although LSD is a potent substance that, because we talk about dosing in micrograms, as Chris mentioned, there isn't a defined lethal dose of LSD. Um, it's not even clear there's a toxic dose of LSD. Case reports have showed people have survived doses up to 40 milligrams or a thousand times the normal therapeutic dose. Uh, now, LSD could influence someone to engage in unsafe behaviors if it's not used in a proper setting, but it doesn't appear that it has any lethal effects uh, that are due to the drug itself acting on the heart or other organs of the body. 
Uh, LSD also it doesn't cause blindness. There was a in the seventies in the hippie counterculture uh, backlash. There were media was reporting that people were going blind by taking LSD and staring into the sun. Um, you're still going to notice the sun is painful for your eyes to look at, even if you're tripping. So that's kind of nonsense. Anyway, that's briefly how LSD works. What happened, Chris, after LSD came out of Hoffman's lab into the mainstream? What did we learn from some of the early clinical research on the drug? So uh, during the 1950s and into the early 1960s, LSD was used rather successfully to treat alcoholism, um, arguably by compressing years of psychotherapy into a single intensive self-reflective session that helped patients with alcohol dependence achieve a new self-image and the willpower to move beyond their disease. Um, Psychiatrist Humphrey Osman was one of a small group of psychiatrists who pioneered the use of LSD as a treatment for alcoholism and various mental health disorders in the early 1950s. Born in Surrey in 1917, Osmond studied medicine at Guy's Hospital in London. He served in the Navy as a ship's psychiatrist during World War II, and afterwards he worked in the psychiatric unit at St. George's Hospital in London, uh, where he became a senior registrar. While at St. George's, Osmond and his colleagues, I'm sorry, his colleague John Smithies, learned about Albert Hoffman's discovery of LSD. Osman and Smithies started their own investigation into the properties of hallucinogens and observed that mescaline produced effects similar to the symptoms of schizophrenia and that its chemical structure was very similar to that of the hormone and neurotransmitter adrenaline. This led them to postulate that schizophrenia was caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain, but these ideas were not favorably received by their colleagues. Yeah, I just want to point out that schizophrenia at the time was recognized as a behavioral disorder, but there was no consensus as it being a disorder caused or associated with chemical imbalances in the brain. Many psychiatrists actually believed it was caused by absent or bad parenting. It wasn't until the development of chlorpromazine, a dopamine blocker in the first antipsychotic in the 1960s, that schizophrenia was recognized primarily as an imbalance of dopamine. That's kind of another topic we'll talk about later, but... Just an interesting thing to point out. Yeah. Um, in 1951, Osmond uh, took a post as deputy director of psychiatry at the Weyburn Mental Hospital in Saskatchewan, Canada, and moved there with his family. Within a year, he began collaborating on experiments using LSD with Abram Hoffer. Osmond tried LSD himself and concluded that the drug could produce profound changes in consciousness. Osman and Hoffer also recruited volunteers to take LSD and theorized that the drug was capable of inducing a new level of self-awareness, which may have enormous therapeutic potential. In 1953, they began giving LSD to their patients, starting with, starting with some of the patients diagnosed with alcoholism. The first study involved two alcoholic patients, each of whom was given a single 200 microgram dose of the drug. One of them stopped drinking immediately after the experiment, whereas the other stopped six months later. 
Several years later, a colleague named Colin Smith treated another 24 patients with LSD and subsequently reported that 12 of them had either improved or well improved as a result of the treatment. Quote, the impression was gained that the drugs are useful adjunct to psychotherapy, Smith, end quote, Smith wrote in a 1958 paper describing the study. The results appear sufficiently encouraging to merit more extensive and preferably controlled trials. Osmond and Hoffer were encouraged and continued to administer the drug to alcoholics. By the end of the 1960s, they had treated approximately 2,000 patients. They claimed that the Saskatchewan trials consistently proved the same results. Their studies seemed to show that a single large dose of LSD could be an effective treatment for alcoholism, and they reported that between 40 and 45% of their patients given the drug had not experienced a relapse after a year. At around the same time, another psychiatrist was carrying out similar experiments in the UK. Ronald Sanderson was born in Shetland and won a scholarship to study medicine at King's College Hospital. In 1951, he accepted a consultant's post at Powick Hospital near Worcester, but upon taking the position, found the establishment to be overcrowded and decrepit, with patients being subjected to electroshock treatments and lobotomies. Sanderson introduced the use of psychotherapy and other forms of therapy involving art and music. In 1952, he visited Switzerland, where he also met Albert Hoffman, and was introduced to the idea of using LSD in the clinic. He returned to the UK with 100 vials of the drug, which Sandoz had by then named Delicid, and after discussing the matter with his colleagues, he began treating patients with it uh, towards the end of 1952. And he also incorporated psychotherapy with these LSD sessions. Sanderson and his colleagues obtained results similar to those of the Saskatchewan trials. In 1954, they reported that Quote, as a result of LSD therapy, 14 patients recovered, one was greatly improved, and six were moderately improved, end quote. The results drew great interest from the international mass media, and as a result, Sanderson opened the world's first purpose-built LSD therapy clinic the following year. The unit, located on the grounds of Powick Hospital, accommodated up to five patients who could receive LSD therapy simultaneously. Each was given their own room, equipped with a chair, sofa, and record player. Patients also came together to discuss their experiences in daily group sessions. So Sanderson and Osmond had different approaches to the use of LSD in the clinic. Psychedelic therapy was based on Osmond and Hoffer's work and involved a single large dose of LSD alongside psychotherapy. Osmond and Hoffer believed that hallucinogens were beneficial therapeutically because of their ability to make patients view their condition from a fresh perspective. Psycholytic therapy was based on Sanderson's regimen of several smaller doses increasing in size as an adjunct to psychoanalysis. Sanderson's clinical observations led him to believe that LSD could aid psychotherapy by inducing dreamlike hallucinations that reflected the patient's unconscious mind and enabled them to relive long-lost memories. So, one was kind of like a, a single large dose of LSD psychedelic therapy to to reform 
the mind or break the mind as it were. And psychedelic therapy was these smaller doses um, kind of to get people to think about their childhood and other things. So a little bit different. Osmond's form of LSD therapy was endorsed by the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous and the director of Saskatchewan's Bureau on Alcoholism. LSD therapy peaked in the late 1950s and early 1960s and was widely considered to be the next big thing in psychiatry, which could supersede electroconvulsive therapy and psychosurgery. At one point, it was very it was very popular among Hollywood movie stars. Cary Grant was perhaps one of the most famous uh, actors who spent quite a bit of time in LSD clinics in the LA area and was a big fan and proponent of LSD therapy. Between the years of 1950 and 1965, uh, over 40,000 patients had been prescribed one form of LSD therapy or another as treatment for neurosis, schizophrenia, and psychopathy. It was even prescribed to children with autism. Research into the potential therapeutic effects of LSD and other hallucinogens had produced over a thousand scientific papers and six international conferences. But many of these early studies weren't particularly robust. They lacked control groups, for example, and likely suffered from what researchers called publication bias, which causes negative studies to be excluded from publication while positive studies or positive data are published instead, making it seem like a new drug might produce more universally positive results than it does in reality. This actually, though, is still a problem today in academic literature. There's quite a bit of evidence out there to show that negative studies do not get published as much as positive studies do in academic journals. So that's not a problem we've solved at all. Even accounting for potential publication bias, though, and other flaws in LSD in early LSD studies, the preliminary findings seem to warrant further research into the therapeutic benefits of hallucinogenic drugs. The research soon came to an abrupt halt, however, mostly for political reasons. In 1962, the U.S. Congress passed new drug safety regulations, and the Food and Drug Administration designated LSD as an experimental drug and began to clamp down on research into its effects. The following year, LSD hit the streets in the form of liquid soaked onto sugar cubes. Its popularity soon grew, and the hippie counterculture was in full swing by the summer of 1967. I guess they call that the summer of love. I wasn't around then, but some might correct me. (laughs) <laughs> the brash Harvard psychiatrist Timothy Leary is often used as a scapegoat for pushing LSD too far out into the counterculture movement with his infamous turn on, tune in, and drop out statement. Uh, he claims that was kind of taken out of context, that he didn't really want people to just drop out of society. Uh, but that's the way the media and other people took it. So they didn't like Timothy Leary. Uh, and there's been a lot of blame placed on Timothy Leary for kind of LSD um, becoming unpopular and associated with him. But it was already becoming widely available, especially in the San Francisco Bay Area and the Silicon Valley. Early pioneers like Steve Jobs claimed to have tried LSD. Bill Gates uh, said that he did not try it, but Steve Jobs said that he did try LSD and gave him inspiration ideas for Apple. Kind of makes it unfair to blame just one person, therefore, the fact that this drug was already so widely available. But uh, Timothy Leary does take a lot of blame, regardless. The death of Diane Linkletter in 1969, who was the daughter of American media personality Art Linkletter, also contributed to the backlash against LSD as the media reported that her suicide by jumping out of the window of her sixth floor LA apartment was directly due to her use of LSD. 
Uh, this is so controversial. She did have depression, may have, you know, jumped for other reasons, but the media just said it was because she was on LSD. So that's why she killed herself. Um, so a lot of bad publicity and backlash against LSD and the government's trying to ban it. But at the same time, the U.S. government is researching LSD um, in its own covert project called the MK Ultra Project. What can you tell us about MK Ultra, Chris? So beginning in the 1950s, the U.S. government also began its own covert Central Intelligence Agency research program codenamed Project MKUltra. Experiments included administering LSD to CIA employees, military personnel, people at both ends of the intelligence and social spectrum, and random members of the general public in order to study their reactions, often without the subject's knowledge. Um, And also uh, of note is author Ken Kesey wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, He was one of the more famous subjects of the MK Ultra project. The project was revealed in a U.S. congressional report in 1975 after much speculation about its existence, design, and purpose. So MKUltra is kind of like real-life conspiracy theory. Uh, there's a lot of information out there on this and other podcasts. You can spend a lot of time talking about this by itself. But I do find it very interesting that the government would be attempting to outlaw the use of LSD while at the same time promoting its use in practice in a secret study where they were giving it to people without obtaining any sort of consent in most cases. Not really a proud moment for the CIA in its history. No. (laughs) During the late 1960s, LSD began increasingly to be viewed as a drug of abuse. It also became closely associated with the hippie movement, student riots, and anti-war demonstrations, and thus was outlawed finally in the U.S. in 1968 and placed in the Schedule One category by the DEA, meaning that it has no recognized therapeutic purpose, according to the U.S. government. Osmond and Hoffer responded to this new legislation by commenting that, quote, it seems apt that there is now an outburst of resentment against some chemicals which can rapidly throw a man into either heaven or hell, end quote. They also criticized the legislation, comparing it to the Victorian reaction to anesthetics. It was scheduled in the UK under the Misuse of Drugs Act a few years later in 1971, and most of Europe followed suit, although it continued to remain legal in Switzerland. The 1990s saw a renewed interest in the neurobiological effects and therapeutic potential of hallucinogenic drugs. We now understand how many of them work at the molecular level, and several research groups have been performing brain scanning experiments to try to uh, learn more about how they exert their effects. A number of clinical trials are also being performed to test the potential benefits of psilocybin, ketamine, LSD, and MDMA to patients with depression and various other mood disorders, as well as giving them to patients for compassionate use who are dealing with end-of-life illnesses to help alleviate their fear of death. Their use is still severely restricted, however, leading some to criticize drug laws which they argue are preventing vital research. 
I think this sets us up well for part two next time, talking about the modern revival of LSD research. It does seem that LSD certainly showed some benefit in clinical use in controlled settings where a patient worked with a therapist in an individual setting to address a problem like alcoholism or other addictions. But its recreational use and movement as part of acid trips and club settings was not what the original psychiatrists involved with LSD research had envisioned, who believed that the set and setting should be more controlled. I think there was profound disappointment and perhaps anger at Timothy Leary and others for pushing LSD too far into the mainstream and getting it caught up in the counterculture movements. But on the other hand, jumping uh, jumping up to Schedule 1 perhaps has been too harsh. Just like we've seen with marijuana and MDMA and other drugs, it can have benefit when used appropriately and deserves at least to be studied in more detail. The penalties for LSD sale and possession can also be extremely harsh. In some cases... Individuals charged with LSD possession to face longer prison sentences than those charged with violent crimes like assault. We didn't even mention in the podcast other people critical to the LSD movement in the 1950s, like Aldous Huxley um, or Al Hubbard, or some other, you know, we barely touched on some other names associated with LSD, like Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters. But there's really just so much to cover um, in this podcast to keep it kind of short and fun to listen to. I know that's familiar with Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, are probably already familiar with some of these names. So I'd recommend to everyone listening to read the book or watch the Netflix documentary. Uh, if you want to know more about the history of LSD, you'll get a lot more from that source. Check out our references below and please click to subscribe to stay up to date with the latest content to your inbox. Um, submit a question down below if you have any questions as well. As always, we do not advocate for or against the use of LSD or other substances discussed that may be illegal federally. The purpose of this podcast is to provide safety and efficacy data and informational value. Thank you for listening. Until next time, everybody. All right. Uh.